Welcome again to the Persuasion Lab podcast. I'm your host, Moed Amin. The goal for this show is to help you improve your persuasion skills. So whether you're in sales or in fact any profession where persuasion is a key part of your success and growth, well, this is the show for you. We tackle subjects that are based on, you know, the science of persuasion, the art of persuasion, and we invite some of the best and well-known voices and experts in the world to help you improve your persuasion approach. So today's guest is someone who is a well-known voice in the buyer-centric approach to sales. Uh, he's an entrepreneur who entered sales through non-traditional means. In fact, when he founded his first company, he quickly realized the importance of sales for the success of that business and decided to kind of go deep into understanding and managing sales. After that business was acquired, he spent three years in that company building out the enterprise sales function. And then after that, he went and did the same thing successfully for another company over the course of two years. His current venture, Fluent, is on a mission uh, to help buyers uh, get the right deal done, as well as help sellers um, get involved or at least shape the internal buying discussions, even when they're not present in the room. That's something I'm really interested to dig into further. <laughs> so please help me welcome Nate Nasrallah. Nate, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, likewise, likewise. And, and I've got to say, I really, really love your posts, um, especially around the biocentric element, which is something I'm all about. And you you have a very, very interesting uh, and unique perspective. That, and I really love the kind of metaphors and the analogies and examples mm. that you use. So why don't we dive, dive straight into that? Um, I'm curious to understand your perspective on this. So if we look at the sales profession as a whole, how good are we at taking a biocentric approach? Not very good generally. However, I think there is this kind of rising tide or a shift overall. Started both, I would say, at the sales leadership, you see more people like myself getting into leading and building sales teams who haven't come from the traditional, you know, top-down sales background. And so you're getting a new perspective at the same time as I think there's this bottoms up approach of reps who are saying, okay, I'm now selling in a product led company, for example. Um, I'm now selling in a company that prioritizes upsell and revenue expansion. And so I'm working with customers to sell. And so they're starting from a different perspective to say, okay, I can't take this same old thing that was taught 10 years ago and expect this to work. How might I rethink the way in which I work with? our buyers and work with our customers who are looking at an expansion. And so I think we're at a point of a, like a pretty, a pretty fun and a pretty exciting shift, which, you know, over the last two years, I think it was just good fertile ground for everybody to rethink. Okay. If, uh, if, we're, if the business model, if the way in which, you know, we're selling, we're not traveling anymore to see customers, especially in the enterprise context, okay, this seems like a good opportunity to just kind of rethink the way we do things. It's interesting you, you say that because um, you've talked about people coming from more of a non-traditional sales route um, and also some of the kind of from the bottom up swell, you've got people that are saying, well, look, I'm, I'm being targeted and expected to grow, uh, you know, sp spend with existing customers. So the, the traditional approach is not really going to work. Are those the circumstances where you're seeing this shift to buy a lead sales approach happening? 
or are you starting to see this in say the more top-down sales leadership or, or business leadership approaches as well? So you're, you're seeing it at, in both. So for example, at kind of the bottom end, if you look at the majority of kind of new people entering the sales force in order to work, let's say a small SMB type deal, um, mm. one of the fastest growing segments, at least in the US, are teachers. Teachers who are saying, I want to get into a new career field with more earning potential. Now at the top end, so you look all the way up at the complex or an enterprise sale, you see the shift as well. And it's perhaps even more pronounced because what people are realizing is like, oh my gosh, even in a you know six, seven figure complex deal, by default, most buyers now prefer a rep-free experience. And so the question then is, well, what does a experience look like where they prefer the sales rep? alongside of them? And then how do we design our interactions around that? And that's where you get into this idea of in those environments, people are buying is selling internally, selling your own team on a concept, especially in a large organization where there are hundreds of competing priorities, you know, the preference to do nothing. And that's where the buyer is saying, okay, if if you can help me more effectively navigate my own organization to get other people excited about and on board with this thing that I feel I need to do my job better, then I'm all for it. But show me that I'm better off with you than without you and navigating this buying process. And then I'll prefer you know, to work with the sales rep along the way. I, I definitely want to dig into how, do, how can people become more biocentric. Um, but I have one, one question, which is you said that mm -hmm. On the whole, um, it's not good in terms of biocentric approach in the sales profession, but there is this kind of groundswell and change happening. Um, mm -hmm. why, why do you think there's still this, why do you think it's taken so long for this change to happen? Because the, the concept of understanding your bias and having a buyer-led approach, even having a biocentric business is not new. It's been around for a very long time. And yet mm -hmm. there still seems to be this very slow change in the way that sales conduct themselves. And when you think about it, that's surprising because sales by its definition is quite fast paced. And therefore we are in the business of selling change to our customers and therefore, but yet we still seem to be very slow at changing ourselves. Why, why mm -hmm. do you think that's the, been the case? <laughs> well, I think part of it is it's just human nature and humans really haven't changed all that much over the centuries in the millennia. And so part of it is we, we think back to our job, our needs, our goals, our quotas, our problems. And as a seller, you constantly know where you're at on the leaderboard. You are constantly hearing from your leadership. We have, you know, 10 selling days left in the year. Get after it. And so what do you do? You go back to what can I control? It's the sales meeting, my pitch, my interactions. And so you're thinking less about what's happening when I'm not there. What's the day-to-day -day job that my buyers are doing? Um, what are they feeling and what are they thinking about? And so I think part of it is just human nature because you're right. It's not like this idea of becoming more customer or buyer-centric is novel in the last two years, but we're all only human. And so I think that's that's the starting point. The yeah. second thing that I think is different now is that um, buyers don't need sales reps to get a deal done anymore. They can choose to go through the full process themselves to find customer references on their own, to call them up, to understand their experience, to look at their software as opposed to requesting a demo. And so there's less of a, I guess, ability 
for a sales organization to tightly control things, to keep things to themselves in order to say, um, again, we have our quota, our target that we want to hit. We're going to control the path to that. You're just less able to do that than you were maybe 10, 20 years ago. And your, your answer just now hinted at, uh, was a nice segue to the next question, which is, then uh, you talked about a couple of those things already. How should, um, and, and let's start from the salespeople level, right? So from the quota holders, how should sellers approach being more biocentric? What are the kind of top things they should be uh, looking at, learning and doing? The way that I would characterize the overall shift is to move from selling to your buyers to selling with them. And the basic idea is recognizing that all of the make or break moments that are happening within the buying process where decisions are being made, generally those aren't going to be in a sales meeting. It's going to be in an internal meeting when a company or a team's leadership are talking about problems, their level of priority. And those are the factors that can, again, shape the outcome of your deal. And so mm -hmm. selling with a buyer begins by saying, okay, how might I work to influence those conversations when I'm not there? And fundamentally, that's about internal communications, not the sales meeting. So that's the first shift. The second thing that I would look at is to begin recognizing that you're working with somebody in the words of um, one buyer in some of my research, the way they put this was, I live here, you don't. And most of us like to think about our sales pipeline, the stages in our CRM that we look at every single day and every week, as opposed to a lot of the internal realities, social dynamics that the buyer has to navigate and then live with, regardless of whether or not a deal gets done. And in the words of another buyer that I loved, um, the point that he made is, you know, I'm, I spend my chips, chips referring to like the social capital that I've built. I have to spend my chips at every step within the buying process, not just at the point of a contract. And if you begin to put yourself into, and this is where the gap between selling and buying comes from, if you begin to put yourself inside of that organization, Navigating the buying purchase, you'll, you'll begin to see how often there's this chasm between what we like to believe is a very linear, straightforward sales process moving from stage to stage. Oftentimes from the buying perspective, it's fraught with risk at every single step. It is winding. It often backtracks. And if you haven't, for example, spearheaded a large purchase worked inside of a large enterprise, those might be realities that you just don't have any experiential point of reference. And so absent that, the next best thing is to develop a bit of empathy by listening to conversations like this, by going back and having conversations with past champions to ask them about what was going on behind the scenes. So there are other things that you can be doing. Again, absent that direct ex lived experience in the buying shoes, you know, you can um, follow people like yourself talking and writing about this all the time. You, you, you talked about, you know, speaking to past champions um, to get to know what's going on in the buyer's side. And, and you're right, unless you've done the job, unless you've lived and breathed it, it, it can be quite hard to appreciate it. So there, there, there needs to be a, a lot of kind of research, learning, listening. In addition to speaking to past champion, champions, how what other means do you advise for sellers to really get to know what's what's going on on the buyer side of the, and their world? So one of the um, principles for onboarding new reps on my past teams was always listen to customer conversations before sales conversations. 
Mm. So before you would get demo recordings, before you would shadow other AEs, you were first embedded with the CS team and you were listening to customer conversations, what happens after the point of purchase and how customers talk about us. And then the second thing, which was a lot easier when, um, you know, we could travel less so over the last, you know, couple of years and we're getting back to it, but we would actually send up brand new hires on site to basically intern to function as an extension of one of our customers team doing whatever job they needed help with. They loved it because it was like, great, some free help for us for a little while. And those new reps became so deeply steeped in that environment. And we would try to do it for up to um, a, a whole week of your job is whatever the customer asks you to do. And mm. it, it didn't oftentimes really relate to our product at all. They were just seeing what, what life was like overall in this industry for this subset of customers. And then you would come back and then you would listen to the demo recordings and the sales trainings and we would go through messaging and so on the, you know, the full playbook. And there was so much more context and color and everything was then shaded through the customer perspective. I, I love that idea of essentially seconding your new hires to the client business. Um, the the initial the initial kind of barrier I, I thought would be, you know, confidentiality, those kind of things when the, you know, the client might be a bit hesitant of having someone from the vendor side coming into their business. Have you, have you experienced that? And if so, what were the ways around that? Because I think it's a great idea. I'm just thinking about the practicalities of making that work mm -hmm. now. Yeah. So, I mean, at a, um, just at a functional level, because they were a customer, we generally always had some type of confidentiality, legal agreement language in place. But it definitely wasn't something that we would do for all customer accounts. There were a, a series of kind of loyalists, people who were on our customer advisory board, you know, people that really understood and believed in what we were doing. And those were the people that we would um, kind of lean on over time. So there was, you know, um, maybe about a dozen, dozen and a half accounts that we would do this with. It wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't a any, any and every type customer or offer that we would make. Yeah, that's that's I, I really like that idea. And, you know, some of the things we used to do, because this is an area that that I hold in high regard, it's incredibly important. And I liken it to being kind of pretty much buyer obsessed, right? You, you come mm -hmm. to the point where you can just describe a, a day in the life, week in a life, quarter in a life, you know, of, of a buyer. And you can do it to such a level that actually someone from the outside would be it would be understood for them to mistake that actually you've done that work in, in the first place uh, and you've held that role. Um, one of the things that we used to advise people and I used to advise my team is, number one, if you're selling to a head of HR, you have a head of HR in your company, ask that person, what is it that they're going through? What does their day-to-day -day life look like? Uh, what mm -hmm. are the things that frustrate them? Um, what is it like being a head of HR in terms of budget allocations, et cetera? And you can, you can open up a wealth of information just by asking the people in your company that you sell to. Um, so that was one area. The other way that I said you know, people should do is at every point as they can, even as a consumer, um, take sales calls. Take sales calls because you want to experience what is it like for the buyer's perspective to experience what those sales calls are like. And I think you get a much deeper appreciation. But I, but I love your idea of essentially seconding um, your new hires or any sales rep to some core select clients that are kind of your loyalists, your champions, people that are really close to you. I think that's a really good idea. 
Um, what about what about shaping the buyer discussions? Because you hinted at that in in one of your answers. With COVID, uh, you know, and everything that's developed from there, there's essentially been a wider gap between sellers mm-hmm. and buyers. Um, you know, sending an email with a proposal um, is all well and good, but you have no idea, no visibility of how that proposal is being digested. You don't mm-hmm. know whether they're sharing that information. You have no idea of the discussions around that, particularly if you're working with multiple stakeholders, as we well know, it's those discussions that shape what happens to your deal. Um, mm-hmm. Talk a bit, talk a bit about, about how you've, how you've seen some great sellers, um, you know, deal with that kind of scenario. Um, and some of them may not have advanced software at their disposal, but they, they have implemented techniques to help mm-hmm. get more involved in those kinds of discussions and shape that. So I'm really curious to hear your, your observations. Yeah. So we'll take it from the perspective of you only have something as simple as a Google doc, right? Free. Everybody has it. So under the, and we've kind of been talking about this shift that's been happening. So let me juxtapose old world, kind of new world. So old approach under the sales first approach, you would first build an account map, looking at the hierarchy inside of the corporation and say, okay, um, I need to sell the power. Let me go directly to the top. Then I would write an email to that person delivering this proposal. That's all about our product, things that we do the best, better than anybody else. And I'll deliver this to you pricing and all of these things in order to convince you to sign this proposal. Under a more buyer-first or buyer-centric approach, what you're doing is instead of account mapping in terms of hierarchy, you're thinking about the flow of internal communications. Who do I need to say what? Who needs to be around the table to read this message? So then what you're doing is instead of taking a template or a boilerplate proposal all about your product, You're looking for the language that your customers use. How do they talk about their problems different from anybody else? Let me use that native language to frame up why this is a big issue so that my product, quite frankly, is maybe only 20, 25% of the content here. It's more about this is an issue that matters, that we care about, that we need to do something about now. Here's a path to doing that. By the way, this product will make it easier. And so I'm doing that even you could go so far as to put it into their brand, um, ask for an example of a past project proposal or an internal memo, take the same formatting and layout, build it into that Google Doc as you create that material. Then back to this idea of internal communications, you're not writing to that one buyer, you're writing through them. You're writing it in a way that is easy to then forward on and appeal to the rest of the buying team so that, again, it's affordable, not you the seller is the center of it. You're designing that communication to travel around the buying team, attaching again, a very kind of internal looking, feeling, sounding memo on the, on the project idea. So kind of one quick example, we can kind of double click on any of that where interesting, but that's how the the difference would shake out. I get the approach of um, using the buyer's language, using the native language, as you call it, understanding understanding how they communicate uh, with internally about that situation less only about 25 percent is about your product etc um but you talked about um you know knowing who, who the people are that are involved and how they're going to be involved and, and shaping your proposal to mm-hmm. making it more shareable so uh, walk me through how would you structure your proposal 
um, to speak to all of those parties involved? Is it a question of just having different sections? One section is, you know, the CTO's perspective. Another section is the chief HR person's perspective. Is it something as simple as that? Or is there some, something more nuanced? Yeah, so there are um, two different points that I can talk about. The first is the difference between um, projects and products. So at a project level, what you're looking to do is attach to an executive level priority that the company is working toward. So the higher up your um, message, your narrative is framed, then the more kind of people or groups you're going to appeal to. So if you're selling into a revenue organization, you're selling to the CRO, talking about something like re revenue expansion can incorporate both an account management team as well as a new business team, right? There may be two paths. Maybe your product um, provides ways to support both use cases and both teams. And so you, your narrative needs to start at this highest level, attaching to a project that the CRO has already backed and said, hey, this matters to me. Now, the second piece of it is along the way, what you find is you go deeper and deeper into a specific team. And that's kind of the hallmark of a truly complex deal is you have multiple different business units, different sets of priorities, different ways in which they're measured that at points can be competing that you need to bridge in order to get that deal done. So as you go deeper into a specific team, that's where you get into the nuance of, you know, you have some people who might be daily users. You have other people who would be deciders in the deal, other stakeholders, operations, people that hold the data. And not all of them will necessarily be uh, a part of greenlighting the project to say, are we actually going to do something, change this? Now, there are people who will be responsible for evaluating the product. Like, is this the right thing because we decided on this project that we actually want to use? And that's where somebody who, for example, like a daily user, they may have the power to say no and say, even though we're going forward with this project, this isn't the right product for us. And so what you need to recognize is that the role of what you're doing in designing those internal communications is creating enough interest, curiosity, so that you can have standing with those daily users and say, well, let's talk through this. Um, what are the places where you think there's too much friction in this product and you don't want to use it? I can go in a couple different directions here, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll pause there and say anything kind of interesting, anything that you want me to unpack a little further. You know, the main question that came to mind was, um, how do you best get that FaceTime with mm -hmm. uh, those users? Because there's a common common mistake that salespeople make where they think, uh, you know, breadth of engagement with stakeholders um, will in, in, will increase or lift the the um, the possibility of a sale. Mm -hmm. But actually, that's not true, right? So it, it's it's about having depth of conversation with the right people, knowing where they are in terms of advocate versus hostile, et cetera, and understanding their propensity to shift and all those things. But one of the things I keep hearing from salespeople is I can't get that time with the right people. Even when they're identified that they're involved, uh, I don't always get that time or I don't know how to ask for that time. Uh, mm -hmm. So it'd be good to dig into that because I think there are some practical approaches here that salespeople still struggle with. Yeah, I so I agree. And typically the approach comes off a little too abrasive. Um, and the, the phrasing that I like to use for this is instead invitational. Now I, I like the point that you, you made that sometimes 
too wide of a reach isn't necessarily a healthy thing for the deal. It's not correlated to a higher close rate or additional confidence on the buyer side. In fact, like if we're not confident about something, what do we do? We try to get more and more people involved, more feedback, give me a little bit more optimism, or I shift the blame. You make the decision, not me. That way, if it goes south, it's not all on me. So it can be a sign of dysfunction, actually. However, to your point, to think about the right people that you want to get there in an invitational, not in an abrasive way, you might ask um, something like, hey, when you are um, working on something new, who do you typically turn to for advice? Would it make sense to get their point of view? Because you go back to the emotion that you're designing, it's confidence. Um, would it make sense to get their point of view on what we're thinking about so that we could be more confident we're on the right path as well? What are they naturally doing? Mirror that, right? Another way you could say it, and this came from something that I would do with my own internal team. When we were about to launch something, we would label um, the quote devil's advocate, somebody to play the role of skeptic and to do nothing but poke holes in our plan, almost in a pre-mortem type fashion so that before a project could potentially go off the rails, you know, we would get that in the conversation. And so you could also say, hey, is there somebody that we could invite to join our next conversation who might be willing to disagree with us? That way we know that we have looked at this from all angles and we can be more confident. Far different than saying, hey, next Thursday, we need this person and this person at the table because, you know, so on and so forth. And it's a... um not any less direct, it's just more invitational, not only for the person that you are making the request to, to say, hey, would you be the convener and the advocate to bring these people to the table, but also for the person that's receiving the invitation, right? If I get to come in knowing that you you truly want to hear what I think, my honest take on this project, not just you're here to sell me and by default, I must say yes in this meeting, Great. Like I'll show up as a buyer with my true self and my true thoughts. And that's ultimately what you need to move a deal forward. Yeah, there was a lot in there that I really liked. And let me break this down for our viewers and listeners. So the first thing was the invitational approach, right? So rather than directing and saying, I would like you to bring these, this, this, and such and such person to the table for that discussion, you're inviting the buyer. And, and what I really liked was you said, you know, when you've gone through such decisions in the past, who have you really, who have you brought in to support you, right? And so I think the language there is very, very important because it sets the intention. And by asking the intention, uh, kind of the invitation-based question, you're not assuming, you're, you're probably going to uncover additional individuals that you probably wouldn't have identified um, by taking the direct approach. So I thought that was, that was really mm -hmm. powerful. The other thing that I thought was really powerful was uh, you, you talked about um, moving to the emotion of confidence. Um, and emotion is uh, something that in my view, in my research is people think they understand it, but actually very little of it is understood. Um, and even more detrimental is that even though we know emotion is a core part of decision-making process, um, a lot of sellers either haven't been trained on this or there's no guidance around how do you how do you incorporate an understanding of the emotion within your sales process so that's something i want to come on to later on but the final part that i thought you said that was really good was you essentially prepped your ass off right i mean you did role plays you would bring in someone probably within your team to practice it and they would put on the hat of devil's advocate. They would be the critic and they would essentially poke holes in your proposition or approach to make sure that you refine it in as best a way as possible. 
that part I want to dig into a little bit more because um, we know that when you do anything important, you've got to practice a lot. In fact, there's a concept in neuroscience when it comes to the neuroscience of learning, which is called overmastery. In order to, to learn something new and, and be able to act on it, you have to practice it to the point of overmastery for it to really embed within your neural networks. And yet, I see very few as a whole, I see very few sales teams or sales individuals doing this. Why do you feel that's the case? Is it just a question of pressure? Is it a question that they don't know that they should do this? Or is it something else? I think it comes down to a gap between the environment in which you're practicing and where you are actually doing this in real life. Like you could, so let's take the example of an executive level meeting. Talking to a Fortune 500 C-level title is scary. And typically in yourself, there's a lot of nerves. There's a lot of anxiety you know, your mind starts racing and you're in this different emotional zone yourself as the seller than you were when you were practicing. When you're pitching to the manager that you see every day and he's playing the quote C-level title, it's just two different things. And so what I think we try to do is we try to replicate um, what the seller does as opposed to just optimizing for, let's have the seller sitting in a buying environment. So for example, could you take one of your sales reps, have them listen into a conversation between you and your CRO debating projects, have them observe what's going on. Then in the next conversation, have them speak and share their perspective as a rep on what that problem means for them. Then maybe you help them or as a rep, you take listening to this, you take the initiative and you try to buy something for your own team. And so you consistently put yourself into an environment that is more a proxy for what you'll actually experience, as opposed to being so focused on what are the words that you're going to say, how will you pitch this, what's the script that you'll follow, because those are two, two very different things. Now they can complement each other, but we tend to be focused on that ladder and not the, the environment that the seller is actually going to be operating in. I love that because you can practice as much as you want, but it's often the environment that might um, take us off track. It's often the environment that might displace all that practice. And if, if you're not used to the environment, for example, the pressure and, and your own mental state in that environment, then actually you're missing a very big part of, of how to practice it in the right way. So I, I really love that, Nate. Um, talking about the emotion, um, you talked about confidence for the buyer. What other emotions do buyers generally try to satisfy when it comes to a purchasing process? So the, the two thoughts here, one, it's different at different points along the journey. So we talk about the buyer's journey as a series of interactions, stages, content downloads, meetings that they attend and so on. However, there's a buyer's emotional journey and it goes kind of up and down and all around throughout the process. So while confidence is this overarching process, you need, you need to architect or design your interactions for different things along the way. So for example, um, at the very early part of the sales cycle, you want to optimize for understanding, catharsis, like, oh my gosh, finally somebody who gets us, who knows what it's like to live with this problem, right? Very different emotion than, for example, at the very end, before the point of purchase, it's excitement, enthusiasm. I can't wait to start using this, right? It's this anticipation. And so the question that I would 
um, give every seller is before you send off that email or you start that meeting, what is the most helpful emotion for your buyer at this time? Knowing that overall it's confidence in the direction, but what do they need to feel at the end of that? Because that is the thing that will stick with them far more than any fact or anything that you communicate to them. Yeah, I really like that because it doesn't have to be complicated. It's just where are they in that buying journey? And what is mm -hmm. the overriding emotion? I, I really like that. Uh, and, and you you hinted at something here. So I saw one of your posts where you talk about the, the approach that deals don't always need um, more horsepower to close. In fact, what, what you said is that sometimes you just need to address the parking brakes. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, it came from kind of a, a fascinating um, book called The Catalyst, where the point about it is that oftentimes it's not more energy that's needed to get to something. It's just introducing some type of catalyst that lowers the barrier for change, for adoption. So for example, boiling water, it's not that you need more water to make it boil, sprinkle some salt in there and it acts as a catalyst, a catalyst and you get to the boiling point even faster. And it's particularly true inside of the enterprise where by default, people internalize the art of avoiding failure over seeking achievement and pushing new things forward. And so that's going to be the thing that colors their perspective is how do I avoid failing? Um, risk. Those are the things that hold them back. So the question is less, how do we motivate them to capture something new and exciting in this big payoff? It's more about how can I show them? How can I take risk, de-risk this and show them, look, this is the safe path. In fact, even safer than continuing with the path that you're on right now, you know, let's just go this direction. And so you're removing barriers, you're, you're removing obstacles, and that is a more effective path than what we typically end up doing is we push and we persuade and we try to get people to go our route instead of just showing them, hey, take this shortcut. It is way easier and less risky for you. So it's a question of, so going down to the practicals, it's the question of being knowledgeable about the path they're currently taking, the buyer, mm -hmm. and knowing where that's going to lead and mm -hmm. getting them to agree that that's correct. And then you're talking to them about another path, but instead of you know, talking up about the benefits and what's so good about it, you're essentially saying, yes, it's great, but here are the risks, or at least being aware of the risks, and here is why this is a less risky option for you compared to the path that you're currently on is it a, is it a, it sounds like that's what you're describing so it's almost that delta or that gap between mm -hmm. current path and the outcome there versus if they take a different path with you and therefore the outcome that you expect to achieve from that yes that's right and you can also apply it further down the process where you're saying in the context of deciding to move forward with a product let's say you're thinking about a proof of concept right You've, you know, you've gotten the buy-in of like, okay, this is the path that we need to go. Now, are you the right person for us to, you know, go on this path with? Then what you might do is set up a POC that's focused on the one unproven, like greatest source of doubt for them. And you just focus on saying like, hey, things will go well versus how a lot of people think about a POC is more like an expanded trial to get you into the product and wow you with all of the things that you could be doing. And so for example, instead of building the massive, colorful, impressive dashboard to visualize all of these new insights, it may just be like, look, we can very easily get your data from this legacy system into ours. And so the POC is just about showing that there's a connector 
in a data pipeline that is going to move things back and forth. Doesn't it at all involve that dashboard, how most people would design the POC experience. That's the difference between trying to bring more horsepower versus just kind of unlocking the parking brake inside of that POC. Yeah, I, I, I love that because, um, you know, having, having studied neuroscience, there's a bunch of cognitive biases that um, are related to loss aversion, right? So you've got omission, mm -hmm. commission, zero risk bias, as well as loss aversion. And in fact, it's, it's the fear of mistakes or the fear of something happening that's bad that usually prevents us from taking a decision over, over the benefits that, that we're kind of very clear about. Um, and so salespeople, I think what you're saying here, what I'm taking away from this is salespeople need to put as much time, if not probably more time, being very acutely aware of all the risks or potential fears that a buyer is going to experience throughout the journey and work your way to eliminating that as much as possible or demonstrating to them that actually that perception of risk, which is usually higher than the actual risk, is a lot lower than what they think it is. And in fact, this is the safer path whilst getting a better outcome as well. So I, I think that's, I, I really liked what you shared there because I, I don't know if you're seeing different, but I don't see enough salespeople putting time and attention towards understanding and addressing that compared with just talking about their benefits and all the good reasons for their product and service. Yeah, um, very much so. So I agree. And I'll connect this back to a couple pieces earlier in the conversation in talking about how to communicate with a buying team, designing the flow of those communications and selling with most times what, um, speak of cognitive bias, most times what ends up happening is we've got a champion who sees this. They're like, okay, you took, you know, you remove the risk, you de-risk this. That's great. I'm on board. But as the seller, you need to help them overcome the false consensus effect, the transparency illusion to biases that will lead that champion to believe that I've communicated this back to everybody and that people understand you know, what I'm thinking when that may not be the case. And so you need to go back to that champion and say, hey, look, here's a summary of what we've done to remove the risk. This needs to go to these people. If I write this to you, can you forward this on to them and CC me, right? It's an example of going back to selling with that champion to then make sure that everybody in the committee also sees that that risk has been removed because by default, there are certain errors in thinking, biases that may lead that champion, you know, to just not realize that, right? The transparency illusion. I think everybody, I've been, you know, I've shared this information, but as a seller listening to us talk about this, you're training yourself in this every day to spot these things. And that's your role to enable the buyer in their own process. So um, hopefully that's helpful in kind of maybe connecting a couple dots because I like the different themes that you're raising as we go along yeah. here. Yeah, I mean, they're all connected, right? And, and uh, mm -hmm. I really love what you're sharing here because there's a mixture of principles as well as practical examples that you're sharing, which, which a lot of our viewers and listeners are really eager to learn. Um, there was another post, Nate, that I saw you publish um, where you talk about two problems in the deal, which is the math problem and the drama. Um, mm -hmm. And if you haven't uncovered both problems in your deal, then the, the deal is at risk. Um, I, can we? I think we know about the math problem, although maybe there's more to it that I'm not seeing. But I'm really curious to understand the drama side of the problem. Talk to us more about that. Yeah, well, I'll just I'll just level set. Um, math problems have solutions. Once solved, they go away, either by addition, subtraction, division. 
right? If we add in this new API, we'll subtract from customer inquiries, and then we'll be able to divide those among existing staff members. No problem. Problem solved. Um, however, drama is the thing that persists because it's all about the stories that we invent for ourselves. And when drama persists, oftentimes it clouds our ability to see and to solve the math problem. We get hung up on those sorts of things because it's fundamentally about people and social dynamics, not about products. And so an example of drama may be, well, I feel needed and valued and important when we have this massive backlog of customer support inquiries, because then I know that every day I need to lead this support team. If we have no tickets coming in, no customers to help, what am I going to do? How am I going to show that I'm needed and valued and important? Does that mean that my job will be at risk? And those are the things that, are they logical? No, but it could lead somebody to say, oh my gosh, I'm just so busy. This backlog is so big. I don't have the time to look at a new customer experience platform right now. And so it prevents you from seeing clearly to go solve that math problem because you continue to sit and persist in the drama. And so those are the two types of problems that you will always see in any type of buying process. And most times as sellers, we're only trained to focus on the math problem, but that's not actually why deals get derailed. It's the drama. I mean, most times I, I talk about this a lot where most times salespeople don't realize that the solution that they're presenting, um, as you described it, uh, may make that person's role redundant, right? Or at least the value that they bring to the business redundant. Uh, and a lot of salespeople don't realize that. Um, and, and that's speaking to one of the six human needs, which is this need for significance, but also certainty as well. Um, so I, I thought that was really interesting that you shared that because it's often an overlooked thing. As you said, we're trained to deal with the maths problem, but we're not trained to deal with the drama, which is emotional, as you described. And, and I think we're getting a Hopefully through, the, through this discussion, our viewers and listeners are getting an, a real sound appreciation for how important the buyer's emotion is, as well as their own, of course, but how important the buyer's emotion is towards the whole experience and the whole engagement. Um, so I, I really like that, that example that you shared. I just noticed the time, actually, I can't believe the time has gone by that fast, but that, that indicates to me we've had a really good discussion in it and an enjoyable one. A um, couple of questions I would like to ask you, which we ask all of our um guests when they come on the show so the fir first one is um which three books would you recommend that our, our viewers and listeners should read or alternatively you might have uh three uh thought leaders or experts that you advise they follow and learn from there are a couple different ones i'll start with um adam grant in the book think again and it's very helpful in walking through it, kind of this topic of cognitive bias but overall the process of rethinking long-held or long-standing assumptions. And that's essentially what we are trying to do. And what we're, a lot of what we're talking about is we're not trying to convince people, we're trying to help them change their own minds. So it's a, it's a um, fantastic book on that topic. The second one um, that I would look at is really anything written by the Heath brothers, Chip and Dan Heath, uh, books like Decisive or Switch, It'll bring you into kind of the inner workings and decision-making process of large organizations. And there are, there are so much that you can take and apply by analogy or by parallel. It's not a sales book specifically, but it will teach you everything that you need to know about selling into a large organization. Um, now, there are a couple of ones that I'm debating for my you know third, third slot here. You can, what, you can give four if you want. 
Okay. Well, um, one, I, I, so the last two that I would add in is the practice by Seth Godin. And what I'm a big uh, fan of is sellers continuing to push deeper into the world of create creative impact, design thinking, not just, you know, efficiency activity more. And the practice is just about the consistent art of showing up to do creative work that may or may not ultimately be valued. And it's a hard thing for sellers to tolerate and to sit in during the week. And so I think it's a, it's a great book for your own mindset. Then the very, uh, last one that I'll mention here is a book called Play Bigger. It's all about um, category design, messaging, because it is always better to be different than to be better. And by nature, a lot of sellers tend to be very competitive. However, the most effective way to sell is to figure out, even if your company hasn't provided you narrative or messaging that's effective, go create your own about categories and thinking about introducing buyers to a new way of thinking. Because again, it's always better to be different than to be better. And that book will kind of introduce you to why that is and then how to do it. Yeah, I love that list. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Nate. Um, how can our viewers and listeners connect with you and uh, learn more about you? Well, first and easiest place is LinkedIn. Uh, you mentioned it a couple of times. I'm always posting, kind of sharing new thoughts and perspectives on these topics on LinkedIn. And then if you want to read in a more long form, you can check out our blog, fluent.io slash blog. And that's where I post um, different topics like this, you know, anywhere from two to 3,000 words, kind of longer form pieces. Yeah. Thank you, Nate. I, I mean, this was really, really interesting conversation. And uh, I learned a ton, took away a ton. Um, and I'm sure that our viewers and listeners will do as well. And thank you for coming on the show to share your perspective around this really important topic of, of being more biocentric in sales approach. I, I, I don't think enough, as you said, enough salespeople do that. There is starting, there's this change that is starting to happen. Uh, but I think buyers have raced ahead a lot further than we have in sales. And therefore, we, we still have a lot of hard work as a profession to, to kind of catch up, let alone uh, get ahead of the game. So thank you for taking time to come on the show and freely sharing your your perspective and your advice with us. My gosh, thank you for the invite. I had a lot of fun today. So thank you again. Thank you. Uh, so this is Mo Damin signing out. Um, if you are interested in any of the principles around the neuroscience of sales and the decision-making process, and including my research with over 428 B2B buyers, and if you want to learn what they loved and what they hated so that you can do the things they love and less of the things that they hate, be sure to check out our programs. Uh, you can contact me and the link are in the show notes below. So until the next episode, thank you all.